0: As we go to prayer, I want to invite you just to take whatever posture of prayer you most uh, want this morning, whether that is to remain standing, whether it's to take a seat. But the most important thing is not the posture of your body, but the posture of your heart. As we go before the Lord in prayer, you know, the theme, one of the themes that is present in the songs we've been singing and the communion message we heard and the scriptures that have been read is just this undercurrent, this thread of the incredible. Sacrificial, really unexplainable, unfathomable love of God—love enough that that He would even have to say, choose to say no to His Son for the sake of our salvation. And one of the scriptures that, as of late, has just become especially meaningful to me—a f- sort of a fresh expression. I know it's always been there, but you know, sometimes the word just comes to you in a in, in a in a fresh and, and relevant way—is from Titus chapter three. When after after declaring all the ways we were before we came to, new Christ, uh, to know Christ, the scripture says this but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that being justified by his grace, we may be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And what I want you to think about is, as I in a moment will just pray for us as we transition to our time of studying the word, is simply to recognize, and we don't do this in a prideful way, we don't do this in a self-centered or self-absorbed kind of way, it really is just an act of gratitude to realize the fact that as you stand, as you sit, as you kneel before the Lord this morning, you are the object of his love. Not on the basis of deeds you have or haven't done, not because of what you may have accomplished in your life as a follower of Jesus, not because of the gifts you have or the skills you, uh, you, you know how to use or whatever it is, but simply God freely chose out of the depth of his own heart to love you, to love you enough to have his son lay down his life for you, to say no to his son that that the cross might be accomplished so that he could say yes to inviting you into his family and into his kingdom. And I don't know what's going on in your life today. I don't know how joyful or challenging or or whatever your life may be, but if you know Christ or even as you stand here this morning contemplating the claims of Christ, the fact of the matter is this. There is a God in heaven. He is real, he is holy, he is sovereign, and he loves you. And he wants to bring you to faith in his son. He wants to grow you up to maturity in Christ. He wants you to understand that that you need never fear because he is the one who will never leave or fail or forsake you. And Father, we rejoice in the truths of your word today. The fact that the Bible tells us these things, not once or twice, not in places where we have to dig Lord, and and look in places of obscurity, but but all over the pages of Scripture, Father, in story, in psalm, in, in, in instruction, in commandments. Lord, in all of these things, even in the words of prophecy, the message again and again and again is this, that you, for some inexplicable reason, love people like us. You've chosen to redeem us. You've chosen to create a new family, a new kingdom, Father, of which, because of Jesus, we get to to enjoy and be part of forever and ever and ever. And Father, we are, if nothing else this morning, we are grateful. We're grateful for your kindness. We're grateful for your Son. And Father, we're grateful this morning as we turn our attention now to the message. We are grateful for your word which reveals all of these things to us. It tells us the story of salvation. It reveals to us the good news about Jesus Christ. And Lord, it instructs us how to walk as your people in a very broken world. Father, I thank you for the ways that our hearts have been encouraged already this morning through the reading of scripture, through the singing of of rich songs of faith. Father, through being ushered to the cross and being reminded uh, what was done there for us. And Father, now with all those things in mind, all those things, Father, in our hearts, we now come to, to your word and ask that you would speak. Father, we didn't come this morning to hear someone preach. We We came to worship the living God. We came to hear what you have to say. And Father, as you have given me the assignment now to to open your word and teach from it to my brothers and sisters, to friends who are new, friends who have been here a long time, Father, we pray that ultimately you would be our teacher and that you would deal with each of our hearts in the most personal of ways. Father, you can do that. The Holy Spirit can do that. The word of God can do that. And we are expecting you now to do that. And so, Father, with these things in mind, we ask, as we always do at this time, that you would, in fact, be our teacher, that you would guide us in truth, that you would guard us from error, that you would deliver us from all distraction, and that you would help us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in the study of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the study of your word. And Father, when we leave in a little while to go back out into this very broken and messy world, Father, may it be with a renewed sense of hope and joy and expectation. Father, not because all is well, but because Jesus lives. And you love us infinitely and eternally. Father, we are grateful for these things and we dedicate this time now to you in Jesus' name. As all God's people said together. Amen, amen. You may be seated well once again, good morning. It is good to see you here. It is good to know there are others of you out there watching in as well and i don 't know about you, but I have already been richly encouraged, richly challenged, blessed by all that we have had done, all that we have entered into here together today i 'm grateful for the worship team leading us in song i 'm grateful for Chris taking us to the cross and And it's just good, it is good to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have a Bible, I want you to take it out right now. And I want you to turn with me one final time, for those of you who have been here for the past many months, one last time, at least for this season, to the book of James. I want you to meet me in James chapter 5, where today we are going to finish our study, our, as I said, our many-month-long study of the book of James, with the final two verses of the book. And as you turn there, I want to share with you just something kind of cool. I've said to you before that when I arrive on Sunday morning, and I know God doesn't owe me anything anymore that he owes anyone else anything, but... But I always sort of hope and I often sometimes even look for just signs and evidences that, that yeah, that, that I'm on the right track, that I have heard God correctly this week before I dare to step up here. And, and oftentimes there'll be a line in a song that I wasn't anticipating that will just mesh with where we're going or there'll be something said in communion that just sort of harmonizes with, with what I've been looking at in the word. And sometimes God gets very, very specific. And I want you to know that he did that today because when I walked in the door this morning here at the church. Um, Ted was the first one here. He beat me here. He'd opened up the, the, the building, and he walked me right back to the table there in the foyer, and he said, did you read today's reading, devotion, in our daily bread? And I said, well, no, I didn't. Um, this is, I have a lot of devotionals. This is not one I read from regularly, though I have in the past. He said, well, go back to your office and read it. And, and, and he said, I think you're going to be encouraged by one of God's Many coincidences. And and by the time I got to my office, then I'd gotten a text from my mom telling me the same thing, saying, Have you read Our Daily Bread this morning? Today's reading in it. And I said, No, but I, I guess I'm supposed to. And when I opened it up, today's Our Daily Bread, one little page was on the very two verses that I'm preaching from today, which tells me I could have said what I'm about to say with a whole lot more brevity then I'm about to. And so if you have this thought of maybe I'll just grab that, I'll skip out on the message and grab it. I know for a fact there's only three of them left on the table, so you've got to move fast. The last one then is up here. But I just, I don't know, I just love it when God does stuff like that when, again, out of the kindness of his heart, he does things. And he does these, I'm sure, in your life as well. Sometimes in our hard seasons, sometimes in our ordinary days, but he just does things to assure you that Yeah, sometimes life is hard, but he's still your heavenly father and he cares about you. And every time he does that, however big or small, you need to remember that, that he loves you. Just as Chris was talking about his relationship with his kids, God has that same relationship with us. And he, if you pay attention, gives you signs of his fatherly love all the time. With that said, we need to get into God's word this morning. We need to get into these final two verses in the book of James. So if you have your Bible open by now, I hope you do. You've found your way to James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, where this is what the word of God says. James writes, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins among the conclusions, the parting words of the New Testament letters, and if you are a student of the Bible, if you've read the New Testament at any length at all, you probably already know this to be true. But among the concluding words of the many different New Testament letters, I want you to know as we begin this morning that these final two verses in the book of James are an aberration. They are a departure from the norm. Because if you've read in the New Testament the letters of the Apostle Paul, the letters letters of the Apostle John, if if you've read uh, what Peter has to say, what some of the other New Testament authors had to say in their letters, New Testament letters, we call them the New Testament epistles, often, if not almost always, end with words of personal greeting. With personal commendations, oftentimes there's a long list of names that don't mean much to us perhaps, but meant a great deal to whoever was writing the letter. And along with them, there are greetings, there are commendations, there are encouragements, there are challenges. Oftentimes a New Testament letter will end with an exhortation in one way or another to keep on keeping on for Jesus in this world. Even the letter of 1 Corinthians, which As you may know, 1 Corinthians is one of the harsher letters the Apostle Paul wrote. In its chapters, he called out an array of all sorts of deviant behavior that was happening in the church. The Corinthian church was a mess, and he, in a very direct and pointed way, Paul repeatedly called them out for not only committing sin, but for accommodating sin. And yet, even at the end of that very pointed letter, the final words in 1 Corinthians were these, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. That's how the letters typically end. But as we see this morning, not so with James. Not so with the book of James. Apparently, evidently, closing words such as love to the brothers, godspeed, peace out, whatever it is, these things were just not to be found in James's vocabulary. They weren't the way that he chose to do things. And and as I thought about that, I thought, well, you know, by now, having walked through this letter step by step, why really would any of us expect anything different? Because if one thing is clear, as you study the book of James, in comparison to other New Testament letters, it's clear James was his own man. He was his own man with his own style, with his own approach, with his own passions, And through that very unique God-given style, we have been squarely and repeatedly challenged. Deeply challenged on many occasions to do what it takes to flourish as followers of Jesus Christ. But even so, what I'd like to suggest to you as we begin this morning, I'd like to suggest that despite its very abrupt nature despite it's, it's really, in some respects, very challenging. There's, there's even maybe a bit of a, a sting to what he says in these final two verses. Despite how it appears on the surface, I would submit to you as we begin this morning that James's parting words, his final message, is in fact a loving one. This is, this is a message of deep and sincere love. Because what he's talking about in these two verses is confrontation, personal confrontation between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And while most such acts of personal confrontation, speaking about, even calling out the sin that we see in another believer's life, when it's one of the most difficult things a believer can ever do, I also believe with all my heart that when done well, it's one of the most compassionate It's one of the most loving things we can do. And I hope to to demonstrate that, to even prove that to you by the time we're done today. And so to make that case, to, to show you why I believe this is in fact a message of love, there are three things I want to show you in our final look at the book of James all around this theme, this call to confrontation. And the first of those three things is this. They're very simple. They're very straightforward. It won't even take long to see them, really. The first one is this. The first thing James talks to us about in verse 19 is the occasion for confronting. When is it, as believers in Christ who belong to, who are committed to our own particular local church, what are, in fact, the proper occasions for confrontation? You know, if going forward we remember anything from this sermon series, a month down the line, a year down the line, someday, when, oh yeah, once upon a time we studied the book of James at Maranatha. If when we look back on this study as, as our local church, if we remember anything from it in the future, I hope it is that, that the understanding that for James, knowing and doing, knowing and doing are two sides of the same spiritual coin. That That we can only truly flourish as followers of Jesus when the biblical truth that we hear with our ears and then goes into our minds and drops to our hearts ultimately makes its way where? To our hands and our feet. To the words we use. To our conduct and to our behavior. James is saying, he said throughout, both things matter. We must, James, at one point earlier on in the letter so memorably said, he said, if we are to flourish, we are to be hearers and doers of the word of God. And the reason I bring it up once more is because when he speaks, look again at verse 19, of someone among us, he says, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, Other English translations use the word wander. If anyone among you wanders or wanders away from the truth, I want you to know that when James makes that statement, he has both sides of that coin in mind. The hearing and the doing. What we know and how we behave. He's saying this, that whether a brother or sister in Christ goes off the spiritual rails in terms of what they believe, They get mixed up doctrinally. They misunderstand the scriptures. They begin believing things or no longer believing things that the Bible clearly teaches and they no longer accept them as true or they become twisted or perverted in some way. Whether it's wrong thinking and believing or a brother or sister in Christ goes off the rails in terms of their behavior. They fall into a habit of sin. They begin doing something that God's word clearly says is wrong. Here's what James says. Regardless of which way it goes, beliefs or behavior, Beliefs or behavior, it is, it is by definition an occasion for fellow believers to confront them. To speak with them about what it looks like, it may or may not be, but what it looks like is happening in their life. For example, when someone wanders away, let's just go to the the absolute fundamental, somebody walks away from the gospel. The simple, clear message already proclaimed to us this morning that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised from the dead, and it is by grace through faith in that act alone by which we are saved. When someone moves away from that message, they begin manipulating or adding to that message. It has, by definition, become an occasion for confronting. When someone in the body of Christ walks away from the message of grace, There are whole letters in the New Testament about this. Back into a works-based mentality. I've got to work to please God. I've got to work to do this. I've got to earn my way into God's good favor. When someone moves away from the message, the pure message of grace, it is by definition an occasion for confronting. When someone wanders away from church, from the church, they were part of the body and they drifted away. They turned away. They walked away because the Bible clearly says that the gathering of God's people is something we are supposed to do. When someone moves away, turns away from the regular corporate worship gathering of God's people, it is by definition an occasion for confronting. When someone walks away, wanders away from their marriage, from their family, from personal integrity in business, from from honesty and truthfulness in their relationships. Each of these things, and many, many more like them, are, James is saying to us in not so many words, he's saying, these are occasions for confrontation. Because whether it happens by our own deliberate choice, whether it happens through a season of drifting, or we are are just deceived outright by someone else, someone comes along and begins telling us and teaching us things that aren't true. The Bible says that all of these things ultimately are extremely dangerous. Dangerous. They're dangerous to us. They're detrimental to the church. They can lead, as James is going to say here in a moment, to destruction. And so what James says is, listen, there are times when confronting, there are occasions when confronting is the thing to do. And having made that clear, there's then a second thing he wants us to see A second thing we need to see, which is this, okay, if that's the case. If there are, in fact, occasions for confronting in the body of Christ, the question that we ought to ask at some point is, okay, whose job is it? And that's the second thing we need to see here. Secondly, in verses 19 and 20, we need to talk about the obligation to confront. There are occasions for confrontation, and there are particular obligations for people to do the confronting. If you've been here the past couple of weeks, you may recall, I hope you recall, that going back to verse 13, just a couple of Sundays ago, James in verse 13 called each of us as, as followers of Jesus, man, woman, adult, child, uh, been a believer a short time, been a believer a long time. But in verse 13, a couple of weeks ago, he called us to what I would term routine spiritual self-care. He said, listen, he said, is anyone among you suffering? Pray. Is anybody among you cheerful? Sing praises. And we talked about how really what he's calling us to is just a regular lifestyle of of conversation with God, that in all things we're just communicating with him and walking with him day by day. So in verse 13, he calls us to spiritual self-care. Then last week we saw in verses 14 and 15 that there are particular occasions in the life of the church when the elders, the overseers of a local church family are specially charged with caring for people in extreme need there's an extreme physical need or extreme phys- or spiritual need and and in those moments at Such a person's request, the elders are that we saw to go to them and pray for them and anoint them with oil and trust God that he's going to do something significant in response to it. So there's spiritual self-care, there's special eldering care in seasons of suffering. But now that we are here in verses 19 and 20, we read this. If anyone among you wanders off... If anyone among you strays from the truth, the NIV puts it this way most helpfully, I think, someone should bring them back. If anyone wanders off, someone should bring them back. In other words, listen, in other words, the message is this, that this kind of confrontation, this kind of spiritual care, listen, it's everybody's business. This kind of confrontation is everybody's business business. All of us are called to serve one another in this way. Now, to be clear, when I say that confronting sin in a fellow believer's life is everybody's business, what I don't mean, everybody say what he doesn't mean. What I don't mean is we round up a spiritual posse. That we get a bunch of people together and we go, uh, so to speak, kick that person's front door down and we call them out and strengthen numbers and we shame them into repentance and we tell them what a dirty, dastardly, terrible thing they've done. That's not what I mean. What I mean is this. When you recognize something going on in a brother or sister's life, When you realize that one of your spiritual siblings has wandered off, has gone astray, again, in belief or behavior, listen, here's the deal. Rather than texting your friends to tell them all about it, rather than punting to the elders and saying, you guys should do something, no, you take the initiative to reach out to them in an attempt to bring them back, to, as it says in in, in Matthew 18, to win them back to a place of repentant, joyful devotion to Jesus. You see, here's the thing. Sometimes God lets you see it, and not somebody else, not the pastor, not an elder, not someone else in the body. He lets you see it, because for some unique reason, He wants you to be the instrument. He wants you to be the mouthpiece that goes to them in the name of the Lord, in the love of Jesus Christ, and urges them to look at what they're doing, at what it is costing, and how important it is that they change their direction. Sometimes the Lord lets you see their sin not only to bring them, that other one, to their senses, but to advance his work of flourishing in you. It's not just about the other person. It's also about you. And and before anybody starts to think about or or want to quote or or go to things like, but I thought we're supposed to not judge one another, right? Right? I thought we're not supposed to meddle in, in, in each other's lives. I, I, I don't know that we're supposed to do this sort of thing. Well, listen, there's a right way to go about it. And if you search the Scriptures, the Bible gives a wealth of counsel, not just on what to do, but how to do it. For instance, Galatians 6.1. In Galatians 6.1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Brothers, if anyone, again, there's that word, anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual... That doesn't mean you have to be, you know, the modern-day equivalent of Moses or or Peter. It just means you're walking with the Lord. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, here's the word, gentleness. You don't come to them as a judge with a gavel. You come alongside them as a sister or brother who just as easily the roles could be reversed and probably at some point will be reversed, in a spirit of gentleness. In 2 Thessalonians 3.15, 2 Thessalonians 3.15, Paul says this. He says, when it comes to confronting, going to a wayward brother or sister, Paul says this, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Why? Because we're family. Because we're family. For me personally, when I've and i've said this to you before when i've got to go to a hard conversation when when i know it's on me to do something like this anytime i know i'm getting into a a situation where it could be confrontational it could be combative i always go to proverbs 15 I'm not going to quote it for you but go read proverbs 15 it talks all about the right way to talk to to deal with to come alongside one another The words we use and the way in which we use them. In other words, what I'm saying to you, what James is saying to us is this, confrontation, which is everyone's responsibility, should always be done compassionately. And you don't have to compromise truth and integrity to do that. Jesus did it all the time. He confronted with compassion. He spoke the truth in love, because again, as I said a few moments ago, the goal is not simply to crush someone with guilt, to make them so emotionally distraught that they can't help but come back. That's not our job to manipulate people's emotions. It is to warn them, to warn them of the danger that they're in. in the same way you warn your child to stay out of the street, to be careful in certain situations, to warn them, and to lovingly call them back to Christ. Because as, as Alec Motyer helpfully puts it, he says this, James' point is that, quote, "The local church, listen, the local church is to be a place of mutual care, in which each member watches over the other's welfare, and where everyone is on the alert to both minister and to rescue." The local church is a place of mutual care where each watches over the other's welfare and is always on the alert to minister. And to rescue. In other words, what I'm saying is this, the obligation to confront belongs to us all. If God shows it to you, it may be because he wants to use you in a difficult situation. So we see, number one, that there are very specific occasions where confronting needs to happen. There is secondly an obligation upon all of us who know and want to follow Jesus and want to flourish. The obligation to confront at any time can be placed upon us. And then the third and and final thing, the reason I think this is, This is on us all. This this is a responsibility of us all. I think the last thing I want to show you here helps to explain why because the last thing James speaks of at the end of verse 20 is the outcome, or at least the intended, the hoped-for outcome of confrontation. Why do we do this? Why are we called to this? Why should we respond to this? What is the intended outcome? Let me see if I can answer that by by asking a question just think for a moment what do you think it is and I'm not asking you to respond verbally just chew on it in your mind for a moment but what is it that gets a a young athlete out of bed early every morning all summer long for practice when their friends are all sleeping in what does it bring that, that brings an artist back to the canvas for another day and another try What is it that brings a a musician back to that seat at her piano for a little more practice, for a couple of more hours, to, to keep playing, keep trying, keep pursuing? Well, I think if you... If you boiled it down those and, and, and many other examples we could come up with like it, I think it really comes down to two things. The reason you keep getting out of bed, the reason you keep coming back, the reason you keep giving it as an, another try, is number one, you hope that someday something great is going to come of it. You're hoping for something great. And secondly, somewhere in the mix, it's a matter of love. love for the game love for good art, love for great music, a love to use the skills God has given you for his glory and and even just for your own joy. And the reason I bring it up is because I believe the same basic things go here with this challenging call to confrontation. Look again, I want to read both verses one more time. My brethren, brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth, And someone turns him back. Let him know, let it be clear that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way, of her way, will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James says, and he is primarily talking. Yes, we could look at this and talk about turning a sinner uh, to repentance for the very first time, but the context here is with all along throughout James's letter is in the local church. He says, listen, when you go to a fellow believer who is in sin, who's gone astray to confront them, he said, here's the reason we're hoping to do it. You want to bring them back. You want to win them back because for one thing, it will save his soul from death. Now that may be just the destruction that sin inevitably wreaks, uh, the havoc it brings into their life it can ultimately be death there are things we can do in disobedience to god that'll cost us our life it can save you from destruction and he says it'll cover a multitude of sins what sins well the sins that you'd be committing if you didn't stop now future sins the present sin that's going on cleansing for the past sins that have already been committed in whatever this behavior this choice is past sins forgiven present sins dealt with and repented of future sins averted altogether she says, listen, this is a good work. This is a good work that God calls us at times to do. So listen, if you find yourself in the position of being prompted and you determine to answer the Spirit's prompting to confront a brother or sister in Christ who's gone astray, listen, you... You're hoping and praying. Listen, because I've been there, I know you are hoping and you are praying that God does something good, right? That they are willing to listen, that they are willing to repent. They are willing to come, as it were, back into the fold. You're hoping it will be a success. You're hoping to turn them from the error of their way. Obviously, through God, he's the one doing it, saving their soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. You want to halt that advance in their life. But here's the thing. A successful turning back isn't always guaranteed. And you probably, many of you know that too. You've spoken with someone, you've gone to someone, and they haven't repented. And they haven't turned back. And they haven't acknowledged and, and turned from the error of their ways. It's not, turning, it's not guaranteed any more than a, than a diligent athlete is promised a championship. Or an artist or a musician is promised that they'll be famous and worldwide acclaim for For the skills and the gifts that they have. Why do you do it then? If the outcome isn't promised, you do it out of love. You hope for something great and you do it out of love. Love for the wayward friend because you see the path that they're on. Love for Jesus Christ because Jesus said it very clearly. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will do what I say. Obedience, outward obedience, is the evidence of the presence and the reality and the depth of inward love. Here's what I'm trying to say this morning. James is asking us a question as he closes his letter. And it goes back to what I said about the beginning about being, this being, a message of love. And the question, the fundamental question of these two verses is this, do you truly love one another? Church, Maranatha, men, women, young people, do you truly love each other? And if your answer is yes, is it enough? Is the love real enough and deep enough that rather than sweeping a sin under the rug, hoping it will magically go away, how well does that work? Not well at all. It always comes back uglier and worse than before. Or rather than being made aware of of someone's sin and, and hoping that, well, somebody else surely will notice and they'll take care of it. Surely God doesn't want me to do it. Rather than that, do you love, he's saying, do we love one another enough to step out in absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit? In, in total devotion and trust in the Lord. And are you willing to rock the relational boat in order to be used by God to rescue a brother or sister from destruction? He's saying, do you, how much do you love one another? Do you love one another? Because that's the outcome we aim for in confrontation. And I can tell you this, and again, I'm not telling many of you something you don't already know. Even when it doesn't happen right away, even when the person doesn't respond, It takes months. It takes years. It it feels like it's never going to happen. Even when you don't see the desired outcome right away, listen, I can tell you this, doing so causes your flourishing to skyrocket in your own life because you are learning at a deeper level to trust the Lord, to obey the Lord, to wait on the Lord, to be used by the Lord. And I believe that true, loving, biblical confrontation can cause your, my relationship with Jesus to flourish in ways that few things, maybe no other thing can. It can deal with us in amazing ways. In other words, here's what I'm saying. Biblical confrontation is as much about you and me as it is about them every time. And that is why... When we're prompted, when God puts us in that position, we should do it. I don't know what you're going to remember most about this series in James. I hope you remember something. I hope it sticks with you, but now that we're finished. But as I've thought about it, at least in broad terms, I think maybe what I'm going to remember most about this deep dive into the book of James is that while what some of James said here was inspiring, some of it really was, none of it was easy. I can't think of one easy thing James has asked of us in any of these five chapters, and many of us have talked about that from week to week, how challenging it has been. You may recall, if you go back to chapter one, that within the first three verses, and for us that was pre-pandemic, he was talking about trials. Various trials are coming your way. And, and here's how to handle it. And, and, and honestly, he hasn't let up since, right? He has not let up since in terms of urging us in all of life's many dimensions to conform to Christ-likeness. And to me, that means that here in these final two verses, he's, he's just asking us to do something that, that he's been doing all along. He's confronting us. He's confronting us with uneasy truth. He's confronting us with deep, serious challenges, messages that you, that I, that all of us need to hear in order to flourish for our own sake, for our church's sake, for the kingdom's sake, and in devotion to Jesus. Because what Chris reminded us of this morning is Jesus became supremely uncomfortable for us. And aren't you glad that he did? He became uncomfortable for us. And that's why today's big idea, the big idea of these two verses, but really it's, I think it is, in a sense, one of the big ideas of the entire letter is this. Always say yes to Jesus. Always say yes to Jesus, no matter how simple Or how scary the thing may be that he calls you to do. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in your word, Lord, while there are many, many places of of inspiration, joyful challenge, things that we can easily and, and readily say yes to. Father, I thank you that in your word you also give us the whole truth that you say things to us that we find challenging, that you call us to do things that if we had a choice we wouldn't do, including, when necessary, confronting one another. Father, I thank you for the knowledge that your word gives us, that whatever you call us to, you supply the grace that is needed to do it. Father, we may feel inadequate, deeply inadequate, for many of the things that that following Jesus involves. But, Father, one of the other things your word tells us is that weakness and dependence are an advantage, Father, that they are the way that your work in us and through us gets done. And so, Father, I pray this morning that, that in whatever way we feel inadequate to serve you, that in whatever respects we feel and find ourselves inadequate to obey and to respond to the prompting of the Spirit, we will remember that what you ask, you supply. That where you send, you also go. And Father, again, as we have been reminded throughout the service this morning, we are and always will be the objects of your great love. Father, I pray you'd take the things once again of truth that have been spoken here this morning and that you would, you would seal them to our hearts, move them to our hands and feet, and you would take all the other stuff and just let it be forgotten. So that we are looking, our eyes are turned to Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.